Hey, welcome to Gospel Community Sermon Podcast. Thanks for listening in. We hope that uh, you enjoy what you hear and that we handle the word faithfully. We'd invite you, if you have any questions or want to attend a service, to visit www.gcctroy.com. We are uh, continuing in our series this morning on communion with God. We, we started off and we really talked about union with Christ, how through faith as believers, as, as we trust that God forgives sins through the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are united with him in faith. That's what Paul says in passages like Colossians 3, you have been united with him in Christ. And so, Uh, We started off, we talked about how we are united with Christ through faith, and now we're kind of talking about some uh, means of grace, some disciplines, some patterns in our lives that that we can put on that help us uh, kind of cultivate a sense of communion with God. And this morning, we really want to dig into this this, uh, means of grace that we call fasting. Now, I got to be honest with you this morning. I I am not one who uh, enjoys a good fast, all right? I like my food, all right? And so this morning, this, uh, this isn't coming from just a guy who just uh, loves to self-deny, who loves to live in these rituals of discipline. Rather, you should know something about me that you can call me late, but never call me late for dinner, right? Like I'm not a person that just naturally wants to skip a meal. But I've been impressed as we've come to the Word of God this week, as we've looked at the Word of God this week, that this has a particular place and a spot in our life. And I want to kind of unpack that as one also who needs to learn how to initiate this discipline. We might all learn together in this regard. Here's our big idea. Fasting is the foregoing of physical needs to highlight spiritual realities. Fasting is the foregoing of physical needs to highlight spiritual realities. We're going to dig in in this way. We, you can see our outline here on the screen. It's in the email that we sent out this morning. Uh, first, we're going to talk about the purpose of fasting from Matthew 9, verses 14 through 17. And then we're going to look at one particular correction to fasting that God gave in the Old Testament in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah 58, 1 through 12. And then find out eventually, look to the, the person of Christ, how Christ fasted first, and find some grace for us here this morning. I want to pray uh, that God uses this time here together. Pray with me. Lord, we ask now that you would open our eyes to see, that you would allow our ears to hear, allow us to know you from your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to start off with a passage Jesse just read for us. It's Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. And this is a little bit different of a message because we're kind of going to bounce around a little bit, start off and get a general purpose of fasting as Jesus described it here in Matthew 9. And then we're going to turn to Isaiah 58, verses 1 through 12, and kind of see that correction that's there, and then eventually see how Jesus lived it out in Matthew chapter 4. But look with me at Matthew chapter 9. I'm going to start, and I'm just going to read verse 14. Uh, then the disciples disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fasts, fast, but your disciples do not fast? We just want to stop and just consider the question that's brought to Jesus 
first. Uh, first things first, that, that Jesus has uh, brought this question from the disciples of John the Baptist. And so as he's there and he's ministering, John the Baptist's disciples approach him and look at what they say to him. They ask him this question, why do we and the Pharisees fast? This is a weird combination of groups. If you know anything about the history of what's happening here, uh, John the Baptist's disciples probably wouldn't have gotten along with the Pharisees, especially if we backed up just a few chapters into Matthew chapter 3, and John calls them a brood of vipers. Not a good way to make friends, right? And so he calls them a brood of vipers. There's this kind of tension then that exists between these two groups. And so for John's disciples to mention Pharisees and for John's disciples, both not fasting, is to say, everyone else is fasting, Jesus. Why aren't your disciples fasting? Why are your disciples so obstinate to the prevailing culture that exists here in Jerusalem in the first century? In fact, the typical rhythm uh, for Pharisees in the first century was that they would fast twice a week. We see this in in the Didache and a couple other places. We see it in Luke chapter 18 when uh, the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, the Pharisee stands up and he says, Lord, I thank you that I fast twice a week. And we also know that from Matthew 6 that the regular rhythm of this fasting was not hidden. It was meant to be public as Jesus kind of provides some critique there that we looked at a few weeks ago. And so it was common then for Old Testament fasts or for these first century fasts to be held often and to be public. They were out in the open about their fasting. They were held with regularity a couple times a week. And so this is what John's disciples are asking Jesus about. And so what Jesus does in in verses 15 through 17 is he gives us three different pictures that try and describe what a fasting life should look like and what the purpose of fasting is. In verse 15, he kind of gives us an overarching principle and then kind of brings it to bear in verses 16 and 17. So read with me in verse 15. Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. So Jesus starts with this first picture, and he says, fasting is to be done in Jesus' absence. That's what he says in the first part. Can the wedding guests born as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus is using this metaphor of, 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 of Christ being the groom and his people being the bride. In fact, this metaphor kind of reaches back into the Old Testament in places like Hosea 2. Uh, God says through the prophets, I will betroth you to me. Betroth, that Old Testament word for marriage. Uh, who proposes today and say, will thou betroth me? You know, I will betroth you in, to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. God had promised to make a bride for himself. And we see this in passages like Titus chapter 2. He uh, purchased a people for himself, for his own possession. And so when Jesus mentions the presence or absence of the groom, this is a metaphor that he's been using from the prophets and onward. Matthew 5, if we were to kind of back up to Matthew 5, orients us to this idea of Jesus is coming and this is good news for the people of God. And blessed are those who mourn, for you will rejoice. Blessed are those who are meek. He's, he's declaring this blessing on all of these groups that would not naturally have had blessing. His presence is a time 
of joy. Therefore, it would be inappropriate to fast while he was with them. That's the principle he's kind of laying down. In fact, that's the second thing we see in verse 15. There was a time coming when Jesus wouldn't be around. Look what he says there. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. See, this time after Jesus' ascension, after he's resurrected to new life, he ascends to heaven, that is the time when his disciples are to begin fasting again. And what this does is this initiates some new realities, that the the presence of God's kingdom initiates some new realities for us to kind of put our hands around. That's what verses 16 and 17 are describing. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. Obviously, don't you guys know that? You're like, just go to Old Navy, buy a new shirt, right? Well, we'll talk about that here. 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are ruined. Um, see, Jesus is describing uh, in these two pictures, that unshrunk cloth on old garments or new wine into old wineskins, that the new realities of the kingdom require new forms. They require new approaches, new understandings, I should say. See, most of us are unfamiliar with these analogies. We don't think about unshrunk cloth on old garments. We don't put new wine into old wineskins. But we can be sure that Jesus' audience would have been very familiar with them. In fact, Jesus says no one does this, right? He's kind of assuming that this is understood amongst all of his audience, See, at their heart, both images tell us one thing. Old forms are ruined by the presence of the new. You'll ruin the old garment. You'll you'll explode these old wineskins. See, in verse 16, unshrunk cloth on an old garment will will ruin the old garment. Putting new wine into old wineskins will burst the skins. The new way of the kingdom, as initiated by Jesus' presence, will not fit the old forms of religious observance. Jesus' presence in the world calls for celebration, not self-denial to highlight suffering or difficulty. So we've got to stop here and just say, what exactly is Jesus saying that fasting is? How should we understand fasting? If Jesus is saying, hey, there's new forms... New appropriate ways to kind of put on this fasting. That's eventually what will happen. How should we understand what fasting is? See, here's my definition, right? Fasting is the temporary denial of physical needs to heighten our awareness to the spiritual priority. It's the temporary denial of physical needs to heighten our awareness to the spiritual priority. It's to to say that things would be better if the groom were here and then to live differently in the light of that realization. This is what we do, right? We we sense something overwhelming or urgent in our life and what we do is we put on a a time of fasting. Have you ever done this? Have you ever felt this need? You, You put on a time of fasting and prayer to highlight the spiritual priority of what's happening in that moment and to say, God, I'm going to live apart from this physicality of my life because I'm tuned in to the spiritual realities of the world and the kingdom that you've created. We desire for the groom to be here. 
We desire for Jesus' presence. We know that these things would not be present if Jesus was here with us. And so we soak in the new priorities of the kingdom. Piper describes it like this in the quotes on the screen. Christian fasting at its root is the hunger of a homesickness for God. Christian fasting is not the only spontaneous effect of superior satisfaction in God. It is also a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. The thing we need to do, though, is we need to say, it's great to put a definition out there to just kind of make it up. Does this fit the rubric of how the Bible speaks about fasting. And I want to kind of just do a quick history and say if if fasting is denying physical needs to highlight spiritual priority, it should fit across the Bible. So let's go backwards into Deuteronomy chapter 9. The verses will be on the screen here this morning. Deuteronomy chapter 9 verses 8 and 9. Moses, not Jesus, different person. Moses is telling the story about how he received the law. He said, even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you, he's speaking to the Israelites, that he was ready to destroy you. And when I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the table or on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water. So Moses is describing the fast, 40 days, 40 nights in reception of these 10 commandments, and he abstains from drinking water or from eating bread. Now, it doesn't mean that he abstained from drinking milk or whatever else. I have no idea what else he may have eaten, but he abstained. He does so because of the sins of Israel and the heightened need of God's presence with his people. In fact, if you go back and look at Exodus 33 and 34, Moses is pleading with God saying, God, if you do not come with us, do not send us out from here. He's highlighting, denying his physical needs, highlighting the spiritual priority of the moment. Esther chapter 4 verses 15 through 17, Esther has discovered this plot of Haman and he's, she's recognizing that Haman's design is to kill all of the Jews. And so in Esther chapter 4, her relative Mordecai and her are devising this plan in which Esther is going to go and speak to King Ahasuerus. I love that name. It sounds like Ashkosh Bagash and that's the best. But she's going to go and she's going to say, uh, you know, plead to king, the king of, of this uh, nation and plead on behalf of the Jews. And this is what the Bible records in Esther chapter 4. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. She has this heightened sense of her need of God, the miraculous work of God in her midst. And so she asks for Mordecai and for all the other Jews to fast and to pray for three days. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel records in chapter 10 verses 1 through 3, in the third year of Cyrus king of Persia, a word revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had the understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. 
So Daniel's saying, I didn't eat for three weeks uh, the, the fine meats and everything else that were offered to me. I only ate the, the bare bones. And I did this because of the vision that I had received as it's described there in Daniel chapter 10. Acts chapter 13, a New Testament reference. Now there was, were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work uh, to which I have called them. We stop and we just recognize that possibly one of the most foundational missional movements started with fasting and prayer. That, that this early church in, in Antioch, as they've been displaced largely from Jerusalem because of persecution, they are seeking the Lord's face. And they are denying their physical priorities or denying their physical realities so that they can recognize the spiritual priorities of the kingdom. These disciples muted their physical needs to seek God's guidance. So we see it, don't we? We see that we, fasting is this denial of the physical needs to orient ourselves to the spiritual realities in which we live. But all of this still needs more discussion. The Bible actually has a lot more to say about how not to fast than it does to say about how to fast. And we want to just tune our ears into that this morning and say, if God is constantly telling us about, about warnings about fasting, we should pay attention. And it's by far the longest of these is found in Isaiah chapter 58. And I'm going to ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 58. And we're going to read in verses 1 through 12 here this morning. So you understand the notion of the book of Isaiah as God is kind of um, prophesying to his people that a, a few different nations are going to come and invade them and take their people away. Uh, it'll start with the northern kingdom uh, in Israel. It eventually will work to uh, Judah. And he goes systematically throughout the nations and he, he describes their their future in the early chapters of Isaiah. But as we get to the later chapters of Isaiah, God describes the coming hope of a suffering servant, Jesus. And it's here in chapter 58 that, that God is really going to deal with the nation of Israel and has a specific critique for them. And so read with me in verses 1 through 12 of Isaiah 58. Cry aloud. Do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways, as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold... In the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your own workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day to, for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness? 
to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spread, speed up, or except, excuse me, spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong and you shall be watered like a garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. What exactly is God getting at in this passage in Isaiah chapter 58? Look at how he describes, in verses 1 through 5, he describes uh, the fasting of the Israelites. And what it highlights is it highlights the idea that you and I, we can use fasting to try and cover up our own sinfulness. You ever experienced that? We can be people who just use religious experience and expression to cover up our own sinfulness and our own shortcomings. And so what God wants to expose in the life of these Israelites is that they themselves have done this very thing. Look at how he describes the fast of the Israelites. They seek me daily, verse 2, and delight to know my ways. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. They do all of these religious things, but look at his critique in verse 3. Behold, in the day of your fast you seek your own pleasure. God describes exactly what this looks like. Verse 2, Israel didn't do righteousness and they forsook the judgments of God. In verse 3, they oppressed their workers. Verse 4, they fought and, and they did so in wickedness. We recognize that What Israel's doing is they're putting on an outward pattern of prayer and fasting, and yet inwardly, they are whitewashed tombs, as Jesus would say. And so what they're doing is they're orienting themselves to an outward righteousness, but really what plays out through their patterns of how they treat one another is an inward decrepitness. You know, I love love to read. And there's an author that I kind of was introduced to a few years back by the name of Ayn Rand. And if you're familiar with the work of Ayn Rand through books like The Fountainhead or Atlas Shrugged, uh, she's kind of considered the modern head or the head of modern uh, libertarianism, right? She held that through a free market, mankind was able to respect the individual rights of humanity, that self-interest was necessary for the market to function properly. And here we're talking economics, but this really gets to the center of it. Our highest moral purpose was the pursuit of our own happiness. 
This is foundational to Ayn Rand's thought and what she thought. But here, what God critiques Israel to say is to say, your fast doesn't work because in the day that you do it, you seek your own pleasure. If one seeks out their own pleasure, God takes issue. Now listen, I'm as pro-capitalism as they come. But Christless capitalism takes on a distortion that isn't glorifying to God. After all, Adam Smith's invisible hand doesn't seem to have a moral compass to it, does it? It's a good point to remember in our modern world that as we talk about economy, about justice, that capitalism is only part of the solution. And that we have to have a Christ-centeredness in the way we handle ourselves in business. This week I was talking with a a brother, and he's accounting for me how since COVID-19 hit, he took a pay cut. He's watched, watched members of his company be fired or laid off. And then he hears about the bigwigs of his company taking bonuses. And he's saying, how does that work? How is that just? Some of us in this room, we felt the pinch of of just knowing that our employer is looking at the bottom line and that's all that matters. And what God is saying to us here is as he's critiquing the nation of Israel, he's saying, you can't be just, you can't be be right with God, fasting and praying and doing all of this outward religious observance and then also be just totally devoted to the bottom line or the income, right? You can't just manipulate your workers and abuse those around you in order to benefit yourself and still hold on to this religiosity. There's something off. Some of us, we just need to to stop and, and just consider that. Now, Verses 4 and 5 kind of describe the outcome. It says, Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. You fast in direct contradiction to your lifestyle, don't expect your prayers to be heard. Despite all the religious activity, God tells Israel that their fasting and praying is worthless before him. And this is because they have ignored the heart of God for justice and righteousness. I feel like it's good to just stop and consider this. Our efforts at religious piety are worthless without an orientation to the cares of God. We cannot fast and pray and say, God, this is the concerns of my heart and be tuned out to the concerns of his heart. It would be inappropriate this morning. Let's just make it practical. It would be inappropriate for a church to take on a time of fasting for a building campaign while ignoring the impoverished and the poverty in their own town, right? It would be wrong for us to fast for a promotion while ignoring the needs of our unemployed neighbor. It would be tone deaf for us to fast for infertility issues and ignore the plight of orphans. Do you understand what we're getting at here? We need to consider the heart of God, the righteousness, the justice that he calls us to, and how we might engage in our world accordingly. 
see what happens in verses 6 through 12 then is he, des- he defines what a righteous fast looks like. Look at verse 6 and 7. Is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house and you, when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? See, a righteous fast brings freedom in verse 6. This is the fast that I choose. It's to loose the bonds of the slave. To undo the yoke. And verse 7 goes on and it describes that that comes at personal cost to us. Look at what he says. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and to know, to hide, excuse me, not to hide yourself from your own flesh? That means you're going more naked to help the nakedness of someone else. I have a friend who lived in Indianapolis. And he took me to the specific spot in the city. He said, if you go a mile down the road this way, you'll find the wealthiest neighborhood in the city. And if you go a mile down the road this way, you'll find the poorest, most crime-ridden neighborhood in the city. And he said, what exists between all of those places? Government agencies. There are government agency after government agency after government agency this is how we've chosen to deal with the impoverished in our society. The church has lost its witness as we've lost our ability to meet the needs of those around us. Largely, we consist of of those who are largely middle class, healthy, uh, well off. But we should be tuned in to the needs of those around us, as Jesus says here. Excuse me, God says here. See, the point is that caring for others means self-denial. A fast which pleases God doesn't terminate on oneself. There's a way in which we can do spiritual priorities and we can be concerned with ourselves first and foremost, but we have to be concerned about the kingdom of God. What happens is the effects of righteous fasting are laid out in verses 8 through 12. Public righteousness. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, verse 8 says. Answered prayer in verses 9 and 10. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. Delight in the Lord in verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Now think about this for just a second. We fast. We put off that physical need and God promises to satisfy that desire. And finally what happens in verse 12 is renewal and reconciliation. Your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall raise up the foundations of many generations. See what God promises the nation of Israel if they put on a righteous fast that's concerned about justice, that's concerned about righteousness. That's the product. Now, I want to spend the remaining time that we have, maybe 20 minutes or so, and I want to talk about Matthew chapter 4. Go with me, and we want to see exactly how Jesus participated in fasting. If you know the book of Matthew well, you know that Matthew starts in Matthew chapter 3, and we see that Jesus is baptized. Jesus is baptized, and and John actually objects to the baptism. Um, 
starting in, in chapter 3, verse 13, um, verse 14, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? But verse 15, but Jesus answered him saying, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Why did Jesus get baptized? So that he could fulfill all righteousness. Well, what happens then is Jesus immediately leaves his baptism as he's filled with the spirit, excuse me, as he's filled with the Spirit, and he goes out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, where we read this section in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So we have this statement, this temptation of Jesus, the fasting of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, and we're putting all of these things together. And what it highlights for us is that Jesus himself relied upon his Father's goodness. Isn't that what he says in verse 4? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, who is God himself, is exemplifying this life of resting and residing in the goodness of his father so that he can face temptation, so that he can deny his physical needs for this time. He can live out that perfect righteousness. See, Jesus fasted as a completion of this spiritual obligation that he's filling all of these religious duties. He's being baptized. He's fasting. He's doing all of this stuff. He's avoiding temptation so that when he goes to the cross, he can be our perfect sacrifice. But he also fasted to show us that God's presence was his true strength. Jesus, the Son of God, didn't live on bread alone. Instead, he preferred the presence of God, the, uh, the empowerment of God's goodness through the Spirit. And as such, he was the perfect sacrifice for our sinfulness. Think about this. Jesus never had to limit his physical life for fear of withdrawing from spiritual things. He always maintained a spiritual priority even amidst his physically needy life. Jesus became hungry, became tired, became irritable, dealt with all of those things that you and I deal with in our sinful humanity, but still overcame through the empowerment empowerment of his father through the spirit. Jesus fasted to show that unlike the Pharisees, he could fulfill all the religious duties without sin, such that we see that Jesus even religioned perfectly. That there was no part of him that was sinful in any part or way, shape, or form. And now, because Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, as we saw in Matthew 3, you and I are free in Christ. Isn't that the message we need to hear most right now? Your spiritual life isn't about how much you fast or how much you pray or whatever else. Your spiritual life is found first and foremost in your resurrection with Jesus Christ. And as we're raised to new life in Jesus Christ, we're free to put on these means of grace like fasting. We're free to use these as tools as at our disposal to commune in a deeper way with God. We don't have to do it perfectly because Jesus already did. Because Jesus fasted first, we can freely fast. Does that make sense? 
This morning, Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness, and you and I are set free. And we can fast, we can put on these designations of, of, of discipline so that we can experience God's goodness and mercy. See, here's my goal this morning. My goal is simple. All I want to do is give you another tool for your tool belt. Some of us, we, we, we haven't ever experienced what true fasting is. We, we might have done it in the most um, crucial moments of our life. That's what we, we kind of reserve that for that thing that is so pressing and so hard and so real in the life that we face. We, we, we do it at the times when our country is on the tip of uh, destruction or whatever it feels like, right? We, we fast when, when some kind of uh, tragedy has hit our household or uh, threatens to hit our household. But this morning, I want to put fasting as a tool in your tool belt for more regular use. We admit this morning that fasting's countercultural, isn't it? I mean, Americans really like food. I don't know if you've noticed that or not, right? I really, yeah. Thank you, Jason. Confession is a positive thing. Um, we love food. And here's the thing. Because we love food, uh, the, the fasting of the church is going to be countercultural. It, it's going to be weird. And you don't have to tell everybody about it. But uh, if you are found to be one who fasts, it's going to be strange to just the ears of other people. Even beyond that, Americans' notion of what's typical for religious life will be, this will be beyond the pale for that, right? This will be hard for them to kind of assess. Americans love to talk about Jesus. They love to talk about spirituality. But anytime we do something that's viewed as extreme, um, it will kind of be held off at arm's length. And so when you put on these patterns, expect it to be hard and difficult, The truth is this morning, fasting can be a tool for us. And what it does is it helps helps us just mute the voice of the flesh to put down those temptations for worldly-oriented living, to tune our hearts into the kingdom priority of God. It helps to limit our worldly orientation and tunes us into the priorities of God's kingdom. I wonder if we might engage in this rhythm a little bit more so that we sense the, the seriousness, the, the urgency of the kingdom of God that we live in, the urgency of the message of the gospel for our coworkers, for ourselves, for our friends, for our relatives. I wonder if we might sense the urgency of the moment we live in right now in the United States of America and say, God, we we plead for you, not that you would continue with this experiment of democracy or whatever else, not even an American priority, but what is your kingdom priority in these 50 United States? And with that being said, I want to give a few practical items because it's irresponsible for me to stand up and say, you should fast, and then not really tell you how to do it. First of all, I just want to say, uh, if you've dealt with eating disorders in the past, uh, fast from food might not be for you. Um, And that's something, probably a conversation between you and your doctor or or maybe a close friend or someone else. Uh, It might not be a good thing for you to take on regular rhythms of fasting because you already have some issues with food that might be there that you just want to think through. 
The other thing is, uh, I would just advocate that we don't try and start with something over the top. Like, if you're going to start with like a 40-day Gandhi-like fast, that's probably a bad idea, right? Start small. Say, I'm going to do 12 hours without food. I'm going to drink water. Uh, Or, you know, maybe just say, I'm going to stay away from this food item. I'm going to go sugarless or whatever. Um, It seems to be some of the Old Testament, uh, what Daniel described in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 10, what Moses described. The other thing, and this is probably the most important, is to use the fast to drive you to spiritual disciplines, okay? Um, I found this to be true. Like if, if you're fasting from food, it's a great way to remind you toward prayer, right? Every time that grumbling of the stomach happens or, or whatever else, it's a great place for you to go, God, tune my heart into the priorities of your kingdom, or, or whatever else. It, it's a way for us to be reminded of, of what God wants to accomplish in us, to, to just take time to even quote a scripture verse to yourself or, or whatever else. It, it tunes us in to the heart of God. Sometimes I've heard of people recently doing media fasts, which I would strongly advocate. You know, I think uh, taking some time away from Facebook or Twitter or whatever else that has no good purpose in your life, uh, that was a joke and it wasn't funny. I'm sorry. But we take time away from those sources of media. Maybe it's uh, the news sources or maybe it's a podcast or whatever else. And you just want to limit the amount of voices that are coming into your head. And you're saying, I'm, I'm just stepping away for a couple weeks. And what that can do is that, that opens us up to the disciplines of the word. Like if you're shutting out the other voices, tune in to the word of God, right? And, and allow your heart and your mind to be saturated with scriptures so that the love of Christ might just rise to the surface, See what we're doing? We're we're just uh, dealing with our physical world around us in a way that highlights the spiritual priority, that that turns to Christ in faith and says, Jesus, you are the only good that I have, like we saw in Psalm 73 a couple of months ago. What we want to do is is not just fast for fasting's sake. We don't want to just put on religious activities. We want to put on religious activities that take us back to the foot of the cross and remind us of the grace of God and the mercy of God that was given to us. That's what we want. I want to pray this morning that God allows us to be a people. um, Maybe, honestly, I, I don't even care if you fast or you don't but that God allows us to be a people who are tuned into the heart of God and fasting might be a tool to that end. Let's pray together. Lord, we ask now that that's exactly what you would bring about in us, that you would make us a people who are desirous of your kingdom, that we want to see Jesus return, that we declare with John at the end of the book of Revelation, Maranatha, come, O Lord. We, we plead for you to be present with us again, and right now we long to see you in our midst. So Lord, allow us, tune our hearts, that we would think that way, that we would long that way, that we would want that way. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.